Welcome to Revealed in Ephesians, The Mystery of Who I Am in Christ, Week 7, Day 1. My name is Brianna, and I am your author of Revealed in Ephesians and your host today. Today we are going to be talking about Christ setting up house. Yes, God has a household, and we are part of the household, and within that household, God gives a spiritual structure. Just like in your household, um, you know, in my household, my husband, Caleb, and I have three children, Ariel, Ellis, and Isaac, and our household functions um, within the structure set up in the household. God has a plan and a structure for his worldwide church of God. And that means all denominations, everyone, everywhere who has confessed Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are part of the house of God. So let's go to Ephesians 4 and look at this um, passage. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And this is in the King James Version. I want to say, I'm going to give you 60 seconds on Bible translations here. There are Everybody has their favorite Bible translation. There are some Bible translations that are not done as well as others. But um, with Bible translations, what happens is you'll have different translations that use word-by-word translation. So what they do is they say, if the Greek has these words in this order, then the English version of the Bible will put the exact same words in the order, in the same order, and do its very best not to add in any more words. Now you say, well, that sounds like the kind of Bible I would want to read. And that might be true. Um, They spoke in ancient Hebrew and in Greek and in Aramaic, the three languages that the Bible were written in. They spoke a lot uh, in a different syntax than we are used to in our language in modern English. Um, But anyways, so some other translations use a phrase by phrase translation, and that means they put the words in order in order to make the most sense in modern English. That does not mean they take away from the meaning of the Greek because Greek words actually are very difficult to translate Greek word straight into an English word. Any language, it's very difficult to take that word in that language and go straight into one word in another language. For example, in Greek, um, the verbs can have different um, endings and different ways that, like we have verbs, we have, you know, we could say ran, run, running, um, we, you know, we have different ways to say the word that expresses the tense, but their words don't just express tense the way that our verbs express tense. Sometimes they mean a lot more. For example, um, a word can say, uh, can, can be in the Greek, be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean just be filled once. It's a continual filling. When Jesus appeared to the 12 in the upper room and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, the the verb tense was immediately, right now, be filled now. It wasn't like, wait on me and the Holy Spirit will come later. So there we see how the Greek tense matters in 
um, how we understand theology as well. And if we just say, um, if, if the Bible just gives us, the Bible translators just gives us the word be filled or receive, but do, they don't give us any more clues um, in with like an extra word, like an adverb or an adjective or anything, then we would need to know Greek to understand the actual meaning. And that's fine. So sometimes I used to get offended or upset when I'd see words in italics in the in the scripture because it would say in the footnote, like words in italics have been added. And I think like, why would you add anything to scripture? But they're not adding it to scripture. They're adding it to my English version of the scripture so I, I can understand the Greek better, the meaning of the Greek word, if that makes sense. Okay. So here we have the King James Version. So I, I just think when I read something in a different version, I get, um, I love reading like the same passage in the NIV and the New King James and the NASB or the New Living Translation and see, or the ESV and see, um, it just helps me to see how the same exact words can be um, worded in a different order or um, maybe a different word choice for that word. And then I always use my discovery Bible software <laughs> and look up the actual Greek meaning if there's um, a place where all this, all the translations are a little different on a different word or on the same word. I'm sorry. So anyways, that's just like an aside, aside on the different translations. Um, and the different translations all get their translations from the original, the oldest Greek Hebrew and Aramaic, te Aramaic texts possible. Some people will debunk the Bible or they won't debunk it. They will say, they will parrot back something they've heard online and say, well, the Bible's been corrupted over time. People added things in. No, the, <laughs> the translations now, um, like for example, the NIV or the King James Version, they are, they they go through and they double check and make sure if they see a mistake, they collect those mistakes up. And then they, when they release the new version of the translation, they fix mistakes based on the original or the oldest, most reliable manuscripts. That's called textual criticism. There's a science behind it. So no, it isn't like they're just updating it to sound good the way they think it should. So just that's some free advice there on translations that you can trust the word of God. The main things are the main things. Um, in between the translations, they don't change anything. It's um, We don't lose anything from the Greek to the English that's extremely important. It's the nuances of the Greek that if you have um, your Bible Hub app and you look into that or you have the Discovery Bible software on your computer, you'll get some nuances there that will help you understand it a little better. So there you go. All right, that has nothing to do with anything except that I talk about we're reading in a parallel version today. <laughs> so Ephesians 4, 6 through 17. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. I'm just going to insert this here. New age um, teaching, um, Hindu Buddhist teaching that talk about ascended masters. This just 
bam, shows you how Jesus is unique because he descended from heaven. He was pre-existent with the Father from the beginning of time, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he only ascended after he had descended. He is eternal. He is the Son of the living God. Okay. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, who causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Wow, that's a long passage. It's saying this is what God, when he set up, when Christ set up um, house, this is what he did. He gave himself apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So God put men and women in different offices and roles in the body of Christ to equip. They are equippers. And their job, they're kind of the protectors of the faith. Um, and they the goal here in verse 13, we have to say, what is the goal? It's till we all come into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So the goal is unity. The goal is knowledge of the Son of God. That the body, and, the, and we're talking about the people of Christ, would be a perfect man. Of course, Christ himself is perfect. So we're talking about the bride of Christ, the body of Christ growing. As you get saved, now you have to grow, and not just personally, but in your relationships with one another, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means we have to keep growing. It says the stature, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So the role of these people, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is to protect people by equipping them so they'll know Christ, so they'll know the truth, so they will not be deceived by every wind of doctrine. There are a lot of people that get out there and they say what they feel like saying, they teach what they want to teach, and they're not rooted in the gospel or they're, re they're rooted in a false teaching. And it is disruptive and destructive. In fact, let's turn to Jude. And this is a little bonus because I don't have you turn to Jude in... Um, your Bible study book, there's one chapter in Jude. So you could tell your husband today or your friend, you can say like, man, I read an entire book of the Bible today just by reading Jude. One chapter. It says um, here, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So he's saying, his role as an apostle, he's fulfilling that here. 
It's like, I feel compelled to urge you to contend for the faith. It's entrusted to us. For certain individuals who con- whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, he's saying right there that when people teach you that you're saved, like, okay, you said the prayer of salvation when you were five at VBS, you can live like the devil and it doesn't matter. You can still go to heaven um, and you don't need to repent. You never need to confess your sin because nobody's perfect. That is what this is talking about. A license for immorality. Like when people teach that, then it makes the world look at Christians and say, how are they any different than us? Like, what are they, hypocrites? Because they're telling me I need Jesus, but they don't look any different than me. In fact, they look worse than me. Because how much worse does it look when you're prideful and you're like, oh, I have Jesus, hallelujah, but I still live like every, I mean, literally what? A big question mark there. Now, when I say this, you may have grown up in a church that teaches this, that you can by, you know, oh, Jesus forgives you. So just, it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. And this is a big prevalent um, heresy in the church in America today, because we know that when the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life, the Holy Spirit of the living God begins to produce fruit of repentance. Jesus teaches over and over in the New Testament that we need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So like this pastor, I mean, there's one that I write about in week seven here. I I read an article several years about a pastor of a church that was caught. He had been having affairs with different women in the church. And um, when it was caught and it was a mega church, I forget where, and the people came in with a new, I mean, the, such a big church, the news cameras were there. And he was like, I will not step down from the calling of God. Nobody can force me to step down <laughs> from the calling of God. It's like, buddy, you already did. Because as a pastor, you are called to live a life worthy. You're called to be equipping people and you're too busy messing around with all the women to be faithful to your wife and family. And you want to like still stand up and be like, I'm good. I can do whatever I want. I'm a man of God. Like you are above the law. There is no believer that has freedom in Christ to live in unrepented sin. We do not have that. It is a, it says here, they are ungodly people who pervert God's grace. So, Keep that in mind. If you are if you are in a church that teaches that way, you may want to look for a new church. And I say that not lightly. I would never, I am not someone who would just encourage people to leave a church. But if the leadership of your church act like major sin is something you can wink at and people can do whatever they want and never have to repent, um, there's a big problem that you need to be concerned about because there's a balance 
Because yes, we do have God's grace. And yes, we are forgiven in the name of Jesus. But it says in Ephesians, when it says that it's not by works, lest no one should boast, then it says, for we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Christ didn't come just to give us a legal, like, you get to sin for free and everybody else gets to go to hell, but you can keep walking in sin. He doesn't do that. He says, I came to cleanse you. I came to put my Holy Spirit in you. I came to fill you with life everlasting. I came to set you free from the devil. I came to set you free and equip you and um, transform your life and set your feet on solid ground and your chains are broken. Sin can be a master and sin can be a dominator. And when we obey sin, when you walk in sin like that, when somebody walks in adultery, and I've seen women do this, they'll say, well, God told me to leave my husband and go to the <laughs> marry this other man. Never, never, ever, ever would God tell you to leave your husband to go have an adulterous affair with another man and marry him. That's not scriptural. That is denying the grace of God. It says perverting the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denying Jesus Christ our only sovereign Lord. And if you keep reading in Jude, the examples he gets gives are people leaving their positions of authority for sexual sin. So you do not want to justify your own sexual sin and say like, well, it's okay. Jesus forgives it all. I'm just going to keep doing this. There's a difference between living in um, a struggle before the Lord. Um, let's say you struggle with with a desire to sin, you're struggling with those temptations. There's a difference between um, struggling, going before the Lord, asking a brother or sister in Christ to hold you accountable, fighting um, in the power of the Holy Spirit, urges that are immoral, and just like this kind of greedy, like, I get it all, I can do whatever I want attitude, and it doesn't matter. Does this make sense? Because you need to know that if you are in an affair right now, if you're struggling with sexual sin right now, um, or any other kind of sin, you have complete freedom to go to God and ask for forgiveness. You have complete love from God. God will not reject you if you go to him and ask for forgiveness. But we do not, um, that forgiveness comes at the, a price. The price was the blood of his son, Jesus. And it is a holy thing. And it's a powerful, powerful gift of grace that is not to be stepped on like it's a rug. God has the grace not only to forgive you, but to deliver you from unrighteousness. And he loves you wherever you are. So when I say this, that this is the role of the apostles and the prophets and the pastors um, to protect us from these lies and from these heresies, understand that it is for building you up and to helping you to come into everything that God has for you in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to leave you with that today. We're going to dig more into the roles and offices of the church tomorrow on week seven, day two. 